What's up, Crossing family? Today we are starting a new series. You know, I've been preaching a lot lately and I love to preach, but really my first love is teaching. And so I actually want to, this series, take time and really be more of a teacher than a preacher, if you'll hang with me. And I actually want to just walk through a book. We've done this a couple of different times. We've gone through the book of Daniel chapter by chapter, the book of Ephesians we've done together. Well, this summer, I actually want us to walk through the incredible book of James. And instead of me coming up with three different points and uh, from different topics, what we're going to do is we're just going to let the Bible be the points, okay? This is called expository preaching or expository teaching. So, hey, let's go on a journey for the next seven months. No, not the next seven months. Sorry, next seven weeks. That would really be line upon line. And we're just going to walk through the book of James together. So, hey, let's just get started. James chapter 1 in verse... One, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So this seems like a very simple introduction. It would be very easy just to let it pass by and say nothing about it. But there is so much in that one line right there. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I think it would be, we would be amiss if we just rolled right by it and went to the next thing. <clears throat> but I think there's so much in that one phrase, and so let's camp out there just for a second. I think the first thing that we have to realize is that there are a couple of different Jameses in the New Testament. And the particular one who's writing this book of James is James, the brother of Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus. All right, so here's the first thing. Miracle number one is that Jesus somehow got his brother to believe in him as God. So if you don't believe in Jesus, this one does it for me, because I don't know any of you that would think your sibling to be God, or what would it take for one of you, for you to worship one of your siblings? I think that would be uh, pretty far stretch, but this is one reason I believe in Jesus, because his own brother believed in him. I mean, think about it. James would have shared a bathroom with Jesus growing up. You know, they lived in the same house. They grew up together. And here is James calling Jesus the Lord. Here is James worshiping the Lord. And maybe you've had an experience before where you got to meet a hero, uh, maybe someone you looked up to or someone you idolized, and you got to meet them up close and personal, but you really came away disappointed because you realized your hero wasn't that great, or maybe your hero was a jerk. The closer you got to him, you realized they weren't all that great. But what I love about James is the closer he gets to Jesus, the longer he walks with Jesus, the more he realizes that Jesus is the Lord God, and Jesus is worthy to be praised. He is Lord. So number one, that's a miracle. Number two, I think you have to look at the way that James describes himself. He describes himself a servant of God and Jesus. Or a, really, it's the word doulos in Greek, which if you translate it literally, it's a slave. Paul or James is saying he is a slave to God and Jesus. And 
this is what's amazing. James ain't no scrub, y'all. James isn't just a nobody. James is like on the Mount Rushmore of church fathers. Of the early church, of the very beginning, there were four leaders that were the big leaders uh, in the church in the early days. There was Peter, there was John, there was Paul, and the fourth one here is James. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Like he was, he was the big dog in Jerusalem. James is the one who speaks up in Acts chapter 15 and comes to the conclusion that people that are not Jewish no longer have to abide by the Jewish law, but they can be saved by just believing in Jesus. So thank you, James. We appreciate that. Uh, but James isn't a scrub. James is a big dog. He has great influence. He's a great leader, but yet his attitude is what gets me. Here he is, the brother of Jesus. He doesn't claim to be, you know, in close relationship with Jesus physically as far as bloodline. He doesn't claim to be the great man of God, of the speaker and the leader of the Jerusalem church. No, he says, I'm simply a slave. I'm simply a servant of Jesus Christ. A slave is someone who has no rights a slave is someone who has no opinions. The slave exists to serve the master. And so I think we could take a lesson from James here and we could learn something from him. We have to be so careful that we don't get our cultural ideas about God and his purpose in our life mixed up. Listen, God does not exist to give you a good life, make you happy, and to make you feel good about yourself. I'm not against any of, any of those things, but that's not why God exists. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. Our highest privilege and goal in life is simply to bring him glory and to be satisfied in him. Jesus owes us nothing. Jesus doesn't owe me anything. He's done everything he needs to do for me already. He did for me what I could not do to myself. It's like the old song that says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. So you see, this is the attitude you have to have when it comes to your relationship with God, is that I exist for him. My life is about him. Because it's when you mind yourself with that attitude, it's when you have that in mind that you can move to verse 2. Because verse 2, now James is going to get in the stuff of life. And this is what we're going to talk about today. James is going to talk about three things that's going to happen in every person's life. He's going to talk about trials. He's going to talk about tests. And he's going to talk about temptations. These three things are going to happen to every single one of us. James doesn't say when. All right, I'm sorry. James doesn't say if. He says when you come against these things. So here's what you have to learn right away is that there's going to come hard times in life. Let's read it. Verse two. We have this in our mind now. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him to serve him. Verse two says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what James says. Here's the stuff of life right here. There's going to be trials. There's going to be hard times. 
There's going to be moments when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And I think it's important that we remember that James is writing this not to unbelievers. James is writing this to believers. Don't ever let anyone tell you that believers won't face trials or that we're somehow exempt from walking through hard times. I don't know where that theology comes from because if you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, all the time God's people are walking through hard times and trials. So if you serve Jesus, it doesn't mean you won't have pain in your life. So don't let it throw you off when you walk through something hard. It doesn't mean that God's mad at you or that you're not in God's will when you walk through something hard. Sometimes it's just life. Now, I will say this. We can bring trials upon ourselves at times. My dad would tell me growing up, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be tough. All right. Sometimes you got to pay the stupid tax. You do something you shouldn't do and you have to you have to live out the consequences of that. But sometimes life just happens. And so all of us at some point are going to face various kinds of trials, James says. Marriage trials, parenting trials, relationship trials, financial trials, health trials, job trials. So what do you do when you're going through this stuff? And here is what James tells us to do. He says this, count it all joy. I don't know about you, but that is not my natural reaction. That is not what I think of when I think of going through something painful. But he doesn't say, feel it all joy or feel joyful because we all know that trials don't feel good. But he says, count it joy. We're not masochists. We're not taking pleasure in pain. But we count it all joy because here's what James tells us, that God is going to use the pain. You see, God will never waste your pain. He's going to use the pain that you're experiencing for his purpose in your life. The pain that you are experiencing will end up being what God uses to produce inside of us what we need to succeed. The Bible says we go from glory to glory. We move from faith to faith. Every new level of glory, every new level of faith. How do you get there? You get there at the other end of a trial. You get there at the other end of a test. And he says that here's what these trials and tests are going to produce in you. They're going to make you steadfast. That word steadfast in the Greek, it's the word hupomeno. It's a compound words of two, you got two words, hupo and meno. The word hupo means under, as like if you're underneath something. And the word meno means to stay or to abide. So if you put that together, you could say that this word means to remain in one spot, to keep a position, to resolve to maintain a territory that has been gained. It's someone that's saying, this is my spot and I'm not moving. It's someone that feels the pressure. They feel the tension, but despite the pressure and the tension, they don't quit. They don't give up. They keep on standing where they are. Here is the truth about life. The more pressure you can withstand will determine the amount of success you will have. I'm going to say that again. The more pressure that you can sustain, withstand will determine the amount of success you will have. If you can't handle pressure, you will be limited in what you can achieve. I like to think of it as a rubber band. You know, if you have a rubber band and you just kind of barely pull it back and there's still like it's loose and you let go, guess what? That rubber band's not going to go anywhere. It's just going to fall to the ground. 
But if you want that rubber band to go far, what do you have to do? You have to pull that rubber band all the way back. You have to produce tension. And the greater the amount of tension you can withstand will determine how far that rubber band will go. And you know what? God knows this. God knows this about you and he knows it about me. You know, some people are, you're asking God to do big things in your life. God, I want to be used by you. God, I want to grow this business. God, I want to be a better mom or a better dad. God, I want that promotion. And I like what Chris Hodges says. He says, some of your trials might be the answer to your very own prayers. Because God, God wants you to do something big. God wants you to do something amazing for the kingdom of God. But here's what God knows. You cannot do something amazing for the kingdom of God if you can't withstand pressure. So what if the pain you're experiencing, what if the trial you're experiencing is not the absence of the love of God, but what if it's because God really loves you that he's allowing pain in your life? We're interested in a pain-free life, a trial-free life, but you see, God is interested in who you are becoming. God's gonna use that trial to develop you into the person that you're called to be. What did James say? He, he's going to use this trial and he's going to make you into a perfect or complete person lacking nothing. What does that mean? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about, or I'm sorry, James. James is talking about becoming mature, growing up. God wants you to grow up. The goal of every parent is to grow up a child, to become a fully functioning, mature, autonomous child that they can go out into the world and survive on their own. God wants to grow you. You know, this is our mission statement here at the Crossing Church. What do we do? We pursue God's presence. We grow in Christ's image. And we share the hope of Jesus with all people. Growing in Christ. Growth only comes through pain. And pain, if you will allow it, will train you for godliness. Pain is what God will use in your life to shape you and form you into the image of Jesus, which is the goal of God. He wants you to be formed into the image of Christ. I've shared this story before, but I love this story, so I'm going to share it again. Uh, I read a book by a guy named Ed Tandy McGlasson, and Ed played in the NFL for the Los Angeles Rams, the New York Jets, and the New York Giants, and then he became a pastor. And uh, it's a really small book, but I, I really enjoyed the book. But he tells this story about when he was 11 years old. Ed remembers one morning his stepfather coming in his room to wake him up with a bullhorn at 5 a.m. And he, at 11, at 5 a.m., and a bullhorn in his face, he said, Son, what do you want to do with your life? Ed said he looked up at the wall and he saw a poster of Bob Hayes, the fastest man in the NFL. And he said, I want to be a professional football player. And so with that megaphone in his face, his stepdad said, great, it's time to build a ladder to your dreams one rung at a time. And so what did he do? He strapped five pound ankle weights on Ed's feet, put him in the car, drove him four miles away from his home and dropped him off and said, son, if you want to make it in the NFL, the only way you're going to do it is you're going to have to outwork every kid in America that's still asleep right now. He said, I'm going to help you do this. He said, what do you want for breakfast? He said, I want steak and eggs and the blueberry pancakes. And so Ed's dad drives off home and 
he leaves Ed there with five-pound ankle weights and says, breakfast will be waiting for you at home. And you know what? Ed's stepdad did that for him five days a week, his entire school age years. He would drop him off four miles from home, cook him a big breakfast, and it would be waiting for him. Now, what would have happened if the father had not woken him up and made him run every day? He probably would have never made it to the NFL. In fact, Ed says that's the reason he made it, because of the discipline, because of the pain that his stepfather put him through. It was the pain. It was that up early every morning. He didn't want to do that. He didn't have a desire for that, but his father put him through it. Why? So he could reach what he was called to do. Listen, the pain you're working through right now, if you will let it, it will lead you somewhere. It's going to lead you towards Jesus. It's going to lead you to him. It's going to lead you to be informed in the image of Christ. It's going to lead you to God's purpose that he has for you. There is a trial that comes in our lives. And James calls it a testing of the faith. Now look, every teacher you've ever had in school gives you a test. Why? What are tests for? Tests are to see what you really know. They're to see what's really on the inside of you. It's to see if you understand. You can't move to the next grade until you pass the test. Now, when I was in eighth grade in Spanish class, I made a 105 on my report card in that class. But I didn't really learn anything because our teacher was the most gullible teacher you've ever had in your life. She would give us tests, but then she would let us grade our own tests. Listen, in eighth grade, I wasn't serving Jesus. (laughs) This was before Christ. She would let us grade our own tests, and then she wouldn't even take the test up at the end. She would have us call out our grade, what we made, and then we could go throw our test away in the garbage. So you want to know what? Every test. I never studied for a single test of hers. I would write down answers like, number one, I don't know. Number two, who cares? Number three, this is dumb. And then at the end, when she would let us grade our tests, and she would say, hey, what did you make? I'd be like, oh, I made a 110 I got all the extra credit right and everything right. And listen, I didn't learn a single thing about Spanish (laughs) because the test, I mean, it was bogus. It wasn't even a real test. And listen, a faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted. Say that again. A faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted. Think about the father of faith, Abraham. He is the father of faith. And there's a story about Abraham. You know, God told Abraham he wants to bless him. And actually, he wants to bless the entire earth through him. Go look at the promise God made Abraham. God wants to bless the, what a, what a purpose. What a, what, uh, I mean, that's amazing God's plan for Abraham's life. But listen, the blessing only came after the testing. The blessing comes after the testing. God wants to know, can Abraham Abraham handle the call I have on his life? Genesis 22, 1 says this, after these things, God tested Abraham. And how did he test him? He asked him to give up Isaac. And of course, we know Abraham obeys in faith and he's tested. And because God can trust him, then the blessing of the nations is bestowed upon Abraham. God has to know he can trust Abraham the faith that you have, 
if you're going to be trusted with the big things that he's called you to do. Let's keep moving on. Verse five, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now look, you might think that this portion of Scripture has nothing to do with the, the one above about testing and trials, but that's not true. These two Scriptures actually are linked together. James is still in the same line of thought. Remember, the last verse ended off saying that uh, God wants to make you complete where you lack nothing. And then this verse starts out, but if you do lack something, he connects it to, then you need to ask God for wisdom. Listen, asking God for wisdom. If you're in a trial, if you're in a testing time, the natural reaction is to ask God to deliver you out of it. And I'm not telling you that's wrong. I mean, if you're going through pain, I think we'd all would say, oh God, please bring me into this thing. How long is this going to last? Those are natural feelings, natural reactions. But what James says here is that when you're in that testing time, when you're in that trial time, what you really need to ask for is wisdom. What you really need to ask for is, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? I like what Douglas Moo says. He says, the spiritual maturity that is the goal of trials will be achieved only when divine wisdom is present and wisdom can be had for the asking, albeit an asking with a sincere and uncorrupted heart. You see, wisdom is a theme that's gonna pop up in the book of James over and over again. In fact, James is probably the most unique book in the New Testament because it most accurately reflects or has the same type of writing as the book of Proverbs and Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And remember, Proverbs is all about wisdom. James wants to give you practical faith. He wants to teach you how to walk out your salvation in everyday life. He's dealing with the stuff of life. And, he's, and it's like Proverbs. And if you remember Proverbs and how important it is, what is Proverbs telling us in the Old Testament? Again, Douglas Moo, he says, wisdom means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. Wisdom will therefore keep a person from immorality and enable him or her to be acceptable to the Lord. Finding wisdom, claims Proverbs, means finding life and receiving favor from the Lord. So you know what you need in times of trials? You know what you need in the complex age that we live in? You need wisdom from another world. We live in the information age. We all know this. Information is as common as the sand on the seashore. So we don't just need informed believers. Anybody can be informed these days, okay? It's called Google. You can learn anything about anything. It's called Wikipedia. You can learn anything about anything. But here's the truth. People are drowning in information, but they are starving for wisdom. It's wisdom that we need in the day and age that we live in. Listen, it was the wisdom of God that led Joseph in Egypt to prepare for the famine that was coming. It was the wisdom of God that Daniel, Daniel possessed in the courts of the kings of Babylon. 
It was wisdom that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to know that they, even though they might speak the language of Babylon and even though they might wear the clothes of Babylon, they would never bow down to the gods of Babylon. It was with wisdom that Esther knew how to come before the king to save the nation of Israel when her life and the life of her people were threatened. It was with great wisdom that Jesus shuts down the accusers of the woman caught in adultery. We need wisdom from heaven when we find ourselves in complex situations and trials. We can't rely on our own wisdom or the wisdom of this world, but we must call out to our Father in heaven and ask him for divine wisdom. And here's what James says. When you ask God, God is ready to give it. And he doesn't just give you a little dose of it. God is ready to pour out wisdom generously on you. He wants to pour it out. All you got to do is seek it, ask for it, and God will send it. We need to be seeking the wisdom of heaven right now as if it's better than gold or silver or rubies. But he says, when you ask, what's the condition? Ask in faith without doubting. What does that mean? Faith is fidelity. Faith is faithfulness. Faith is loyalty. In other words, when you ask God for something, there better be a consistency or a loyalty in your life. There better be a trajectory of consistency in your life where you have been trusting in the promises of God. You can't ask God if your loyalties are divided. He says, make up your mind. If you're going to serve God, then serve God wholeheartedly. Don't be wishy-washy like the sea tossed about to and fro. You won't get anything from God if you're not sold out. You got to burn the ships, say, I'm not going back to my old life. And, and when you have that mentality, when you have that heart of faithfulness towards God, you can ask God for anything and you could take it to the bank. What is James saying here? This is basically what he's saying. Don't expect the benefit of a full-time God when you're only a part-time follower. Don't ask, he's, he's ready to pour out all the benefits on you, but don't ask him if you're not sold out. You won't get anything from God. You're a double-minded person and you're unstable in all your ways. Oh God, help me, help me, help me, but you're not willing to give up that thing that's got a hold of you. You get in problems and you ask God to get you out of the problems, but you're not willing to change your life or allow him to change you so you don't get back in the same old problems. That's a double-minded man. You're unstable. And so what does it look like when you have godly wisdom in situations? All right, this is a real concrete example. This is a concrete example of a test and what godly wisdom looks like in a test. Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower, it falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So now James, what's he doing? He's giving you a real life example of what a test in life looks like. He gives two situations. He gives one man who's poor and lowly, and he says that's a test. And he gives another example of a man who's rich and prosperous. And he says, that's also a test. Prosperity is a test. And so is being poor. So, and he says, okay, here's what the wisdom of God looks like in both of these situations. He says, if you're poor, the wisdom of God in this situation is that you might be tempted to be uh, in despair. You might be tempted to give up. You might be tempted to think, what's the use? 
But this is what he says. No, no, no. Put your hope, put your pride in this, that God is going to exalt the lowly, that God sees you today. He's not forgotten about you. The wisdom for those who feel like they have without and the world has passed them by and God's forgotten about them, everybody's forgotten about them, is to not fall into the temptation of despair, but to realize that God sees you and he's not forgotten about you. Joni Erickson Tata tells a story of a young lady named Denise. And when Denise was just a girl in high school with her whole life before her, one day at school she fell down the stairs at school and she passed out. When she woke up, she couldn't feel her feet. She went home that day and took a nap. When she got up from the nap, she couldn't move her body. Eventually, her whole body started shutting down to the point where she could hardly move her mouth to talk. Denise was diagnosed with an extremely fast-moving case of MS. And so here was a young, beautiful girl, cheerleader, who now life has stopped her dead in her tracks. She has been brought low. But Joni Erickson taught us that her faith never wavered. Even though she lost everything, her mom would come and read her the Bible every day. Eventually, Denise died. And Joni was really upset with God. She said, God, what was the point in that? Joni had her whole life ahead of her. And now she dies in this miserable way and she really died alone. The world just moved on. The world kind of forgot her. The world just kind of kept on going. And here she is, this young girl who she died in faith, but no one was even watching. What's the point? Joni was in despair about it. But then one day she had a revelation. She had this revelation that Denise didn't die with no one watching. In fact, Denise died with the entire spiritual world watching. Because Ephesians 3.10 says this, that, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And that first Peter tells us that angels are looking in in awe at God's grace that's at work in our lives. And that God himself, the whole world is naked before him and he sees all things. And she came to the realization this young girl didn't die alone and in vain, but God himself had put her on display before the very powers of the spiritual world, before the angels, and even God himself was watching in. And the faith of that young lady pleased the Lord, and she is now rejoicing in heaven. And what the poor man and what the lowly person needs to realize today is if you don't have much here, The good news is that this is not the end. The good news is that there's a great reward there. That is the wisdom we live by. And then he says, if you have a lot, if you have prosperity, be extra careful because prosperity is a test. You have to be careful that when you're not, you have to be careful that all the stuff you have and all the blessings you have, that you're not deriving your happiness from those things because James tells us you can't put your trust in those things because those things are fading. And when those things fade away, if your hope is in it, if your happiness is in it, that when those things have faded, so will your hope, so will your happiness, you will fade too. Beauty is fading. Health is fading. Money can leave as fast as it comes. Success fades and we have to learn to live with an open hand. Godly wisdom says if you find yourself in a prosperous situation, realize that everything you have is temporary 
Everything you put your eyes on is temporary. But the only thing that is eternal is the unseen realm. The unseen is what it is eternal. So the poor man that doesn't have much now puts his hope in the unseen because he will be rewarded there. The rich man now, what does he do? He realizes all these riches are going away. He can't take it with him anyways. And he needs to put his eyes on the unseen. This is godly wisdom for a situation that you find yourself in. Then James goes on to say, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promised to those who love him. The ultimate blessing for those who persevere is the crown of life. You know, I think about even the person who wrote this, James, and the crown of life he received. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Well, little did James know that after he wrote this book, it would not be too many days where he would face the final trial of his life. You see, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was told by the religious leaders, hey, this Christian thing, it's gone too far. There's too many people. We need you to renounce your faith. James refused to do it. And you know what the religious leaders did? They took him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And they said, recant your faith or we're pushing you off. He said, I can't do it. And so you know what they did? They pushed him off the pinnacle of the temple. James falls down and he doesn't die. But he's hurt and he's twisted up and he's mangled. And when he hits the ground, you know what James does? History tells us that he starts praying for those who are persecuting him. That he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them from what they're doing. And as he's praying for them, they come with clubs and stones and they beat him to death. Can I tell you that that's not the end of James's story? And that's not the end of James's life? James is alive and well today. He is in heaven with our Father. He is in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a great reward because this earth is not all that there is. If you think that this is all there is right here, of course you're going to do everything you can to stay young. You'll get every plastic surgery you could possibly get. You'll try to make the most money you could possibly make, have the most pleasure you could possibly have, because in your mind, this is all there is. But not us who are believers. We know this is not all, but there is a world to come. And that's where our trust is. That's what we long for, is the crown of life. James says, let no one say when he is tempted. And I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. You see, with every trial you walk through, there is also a temptation that is in the trial. Every test you go through, there is the possibility of failing the test or cheating on the test. You see, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit leads Jesus but then it was the devil that comes and tempts him. There was a temptation in the wilderness, a temptation to quit, a temptation to give up, a temptation to run away. Every trial presents within itself a temptation. He goes on to say, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has become conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So you see this progression here. A temptation that comes from a desire. A desire that gives birth and becomes sin. 
And sin gives, finally, it'll give forth or bring forth death. This is a stern warning from James. Recently, I was at a, a service where Pastor Jensen Franklin was speaking, and he gave just the best, one of the best metaphors I've ever heard for sin. And so like any other good preacher, I'm going to steal it, okay? So this came from Pastor Jensen, but I thought it was so great. He told the story of a man with the last name of Treadwell. And you can look this up. I think there's a documentary about it, maybe on Netflix, and you can look at it online. There was a man named Treadwell. And Treadwell was known for his interaction with grizzly bears. Treadwell was a guy that actually moved out to Alaska and lived with grizzlies for long periods of time and interacted with them. And he was actually known for someone who would get close to the bears he observed. Sometimes he would even touch them. He would play with bear cubs. And, you know, in his book, he claimed that he was always careful with the bears and that he actually developed a sense of mutual trust and respect with the animals. He says there were some bears he interacted with on a regular basis. He knew them. They knew him. He even named them and had a relationship with these bears. <laughs> Grizzly bears. But there is something that uh, Treadwell mentions briefly in his memoir. And other people that have dealt with grizzly bears talk about this too. They talk about the 25th bear or the 25th grizzly. And here's what they say. One out of every 25 grizzlies is uh, this. It's one that tolerates no man or bear. One that will kill without bias. So Treadwell even mentions this, that there are one out of every 25 grizzlies. There is a mean grizzly that has a look in his eye. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, he going to kill you. <laughs> and so here's the problem if you're out in the wilderness. Grizzlies don't walk around with numbers on their chest. They don't tell you which one is the 25th bear. You walk around out in Alaska and say, oh man, that's number 11. He's my friend. It's all good. You don't know if he's 11, 19. You don't know which one he is. One out of every 25. Well, on October 5th, 2003, Treadwell met his 25th bear. He and his girlfriend, Amy, were killed and instantly eaten, almost fully eaten by a bear. They said when they opened the stomach, they found uh, human remains and clothing. He was out, he got a little too close, out taking pictures, and he ran across the 25th bear. You see, here's the thing about sin. Sin is not neutral. Sin is like a wild, grisly bear. You know, God told Cain, sin is crouching at the door like a wild beast, and it wants to consume you. It wants to control you. Here's the thing about sin. You think you can play around with something? You think you can mess around? Oh, this is just a, 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 a little bit of alcohol. Oh, it's just a, a little bit of pornography. Oh, it's just, a little, it's just a little casual flirtation with that person at your work that's not your spouse. Oh, it's just a, a little bit of this. The problem is you don't know which is the 25th bear. You don't know when it's going to take you out. Sin is coming for you and it wants to take you out and you can't play with it. Don't even allow it in your life. Don't even make room for it because when sin has fully grown, not right at first, 
You know, that's what Satan told Adam and Eve. Oh, surely you won't die if you just take that one little bite. And really, they didn't die at first, but eventually what it leads to. And sin always leads to death. There's no playing around with it. You don't know which one is the 25th bear. And so James says, how do we deal with the 25th bear? How do we deal with this sinful desire? He, he starts it out and he says it's desire. He says it starts with desire. If you want to deal with sin, you don't deal with sin by just saying no. You don't deal with sin by just quitting. If you want to deal with sin, here's how you deal with sin. You got to deal with your desires. It's what has your affections? What has your heart been set on? How do we, how do we get away from sin? Thomas Chalmers, the great preacher, said this, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object more beautiful. You know, when it comes to my relationship with my wife, Ashton, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I don't look in the mirror and say, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't do this. Don't do that. I don't do that. That's not how relationships work. You want to know how you don't commit adultery? You don't commit adultery by falling in love with the one that you got and loving them with all of your heart. It's about love. It's about desire. It's about that relationship. How do we deal with sin? We got to look on the one more beautiful than our sin. We got to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We got to look to Jesus who when he was under trial, he didn't run away. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter, someone comes to arrest him. Peter pulls out a sword, chops off the ear of the guy that's there to arrest him. And Jesus says, put that sword away. Jesus says, don't you know? that I could, I could end this show anytime I want to. I could call 10,000 angels to come and destroy the world and set me free and all this be over with. But he didn't do that. He stayed in the trial. He stayed in the fire. He gives himself up for us. He is the more beautiful one. Not falling prey to temptation has little to do with just saying no. It has everything to do with falling more in love with Jesus, the one who persevered under trial for us. So we're dealing with the stuff of life. We're going to go through trials, but God's going to make those trials work out for your good. We're going to be tested, but the reason he's testing us is so he can trust us with more. And we will be tempted, but the way we get out of temptation, the way we loose ourselves from desire is to, is to desire him more than we desire the sin that can lead to death. Father, I pray for your people today. Lord, I pray that we would, I pray for those who are struggling through a trial right now. They are in it, Lord. They are going through such a hard time. Father, I pray they would feel the nearness of your presence. I pray as they cry out to you for wisdom, that you would give them wisdom about the complex situation they find themselves in. God, I pray for those who are enduring testing. Lord, I pray that in the test, they would remain faithful and steadfast and strong. Lord, I pray for those that are tempted today. God, I pray that they would see you are more beautiful, you are more lovely than any other thing that could entice our souls. Let us see you and what you did for us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, we love you. We're walking through the book of James, line upon line, little expository teaching, preaching over the next few weeks. 
Hey, we're always here, 9 and 11 live or 10 a.m. on Virtual Church. We'll see you soon.